Good morning, everyone. My name is Norton. I'm one of the pastors here at New Denver. And uh, today is part four of our series called Sacred Soma. Let me um, just take a moment, uh, a few moments, to briefly review what we've talked about so far and maybe even clarify a few things. Uh, The first, very first week in part one, um, we said this, your body is sacred. That's where every discussion of our own bodies has to begin. Um, and yet, for most of us, it doesn't begin there. Uh, most of us, when we look in the mirror, uh, uh, you think, uh, my body is ugly, or my body is unattractive, or my body is too fat and I need to lose some weight, or uh, my body is old and it's falling apart. And um, sometimes we just don't even want to look at our bodies. We want to look it away. Um, or uh, sometimes we look at our bodies and we begin to obsess about how, how can we improve them? How can we enhance them or embellish them or even perfect them according to whatever uh, standards of beauty or strength or, or what's masculine or what's feminine um, that we bought into from our culture? And the Apostle Paul says, hold on a second. Here's where you need to start. Your body is sacred. It's, it's where God lives. In fact, he gives this great image. He says, it's a temple. It's like a temple where God lives. And that makes it sacred and holy. So before you think of anything else when it comes to your body, you need to remember that. Your body is sacred. Uh, In part two, we said, your body is you. Your body is you, which just means um, it's not that your soul is you, that that's the real part of you or your spirit or your heart or your mind. That there's something deep inside of you and that's the real part of you and your body is just a shell um, or a prison uh, for your soul. Some of us uh, sort of have bought into that idea and the Bible just paints a very different picture. The biblical authors seem to suggest you don't just have a body, you actually are a body. Your knees, that's you. Your, your ribs, those are you. Your, your limbs, your fingers, those are you. Even when they don't work well, right? Even when they're broken. Even when things aren't working the way they're supposed to. Even when there's disease or, or disability. I mean, part of the reason that we lament so much when there is disease or disability or some injury or something happens or we maybe even lose part of our body is because we know we're losing part of ourselves. It's not just flesh, right? It's not just a limb. It's us. Your body is you. Now, someone asked me um, after that week, I said, well, are you saying that we don't really have a soul then? There's not a spiritual part of us? And that's not true. We are deeply spiritual people, and there is a spiritual aspect to who we are. And if we want to call that the soul, that's fine. Um, It's just that sometimes the soul, the way we use it in English, is not uh, really the same way the Bible thinks about the soul or the spiritual part of us. The Bible basically paints a portrait that says there is a physical part of us and a spiritual part of us, and they are so integrated they are so together they, 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 that you can't pull them apart. You can't make them distinct. And, and you certainly shouldn't pull them apart and suggest that this one is good and this is the real you, but this body part over here, that's not really you. If you've been a follower of Jesus for um, some time, let me give you an analogy that might help. Uh, the Apostle John, at the beginning of John's Gospel, he says, Jesus was full of grace and truth. 
Do you remember when he said that? That Jesus was full of grace and truth. It's not that Jesus was 50% grace and 50% truth. It's not that Jesus is sometimes gracious, but not truthful. And he's sometimes truthful, but he's not really gracious in those moments. No, he is 100% truth and 100% grace. Now, sometimes we read stories that sort of emphasize the truth that Jesus is teaching or living out, and sometimes we read stories that that shine more of a light on the grace that he's showing and living out, but the truth that he lived and he taught, it was always fully gracious, and the grace that he embodied, it was always truthful. He was the perfect embodiment of living both of these things wholly integrated, and our bodies And our souls are a little bit like that. So you could even describe us as as fully integrated beings that we we are embodied souls. Our souls are always embodied. Or you could even flip it around and say, we are ensouled bodies. That's how how integrated we are. So you are your body. And it's important to say that. That doesn't mean you're not your soul. It's just that sometimes we forget how much our bodies really are us. Now, last week, uh, part three, Emily um, preached and she taught us that our bodies are dying. Your body is dying and it's being made new. We all know our bodies are dying. um, And there's all sorts of physical and spiritual uh, reasons for that. But that is not the end of the story. The end of the story is that our bodies, our our actual bodies will be raised and will be made new. And that gives us hope even when our bodies in the present don't work the way we want them to or need them to. So that's a whole lot of theology to think about. And part of the reason we've been walking through this very slowly and carefully is to just let some of these ideas, as simple as they sound, just soak in our minds. And today, I want to give you another idea or a statement that comes from the Apostle Paul about our bodies, and it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now, a brief recap, uh, Paul writes two letters to his friends living in a place called Corinth. So here's the map again, Um, and Corinth is in ancient Greece. Uh, It's a city there. Um, He has friends that live in this city. Uh, They are followers of Jesus, so they're Christians, but they're a very tiny minority. This is early, early, early in the Christian movement. And so they're a tiny minority. Most people have never even heard of Jesus. Most people are not even Jewish in Corinth. They're just uh, Greek-speaking people, Greek-cultured people, people that buy into Greek um, philosophy, Greek thought, Greek mythology, all of those sorts of things. And so he has friends there, and he writes several letters. Uh, We have at least two of them. There might have been more that he wrote, but two of them were preserved. And uh, we've named those 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. And it seems like if you ever read both of those letters together, Paul talks a whole lot about the body in these letters to his friends. And it becomes apparent that it's because the people living in Corinth, his friends there, have a whole lot of issues or challenges or struggles related to their bodies. And you'll see why in just a second. So we're just going to jump right in the middle of the letter. And you kind of always have to remember that. It's a letter he's writing. Um, so there weren't verses back then. It was just a normal letter. But we're just going to jump right in the middle of it and kind of pick up um, him midstream. And here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 12. I have the right to do anything 
you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. So Paul's actually quoting them back to themselves. He's quoting something they say, and then he's responding to it. Basically, he's saying, look, here's something you guys say all the time. You always saying, it's in quotes there, you, I have the right to do anything. Basically, the, his friends in Corinth are always saying, look, I can do anything I want. It's my life. It's my body. It's my choice. I can do whatever I want. You don't have any right to tell me what I get to do with my life, with my body, with my choices. And I think that idea sounds incredibly familiar, right? Because that's kind of the culture that we live in today. We champion our uh, values of independence and individualism, and there's always this sense of it's my body, it's my life, it's my choices, I can do whatever I want, and you don't really have any right to tell me how to live my life. And as different as Corinthian culture was 2,000 years ago, this is probably one place where we have a lot in common. So Paul is sort of quoting this slogan back to them. You know, you always say, I have the right to do whatever I want. And he's saying, but then, but not everything is beneficial to do. Yeah, you can do whatever you want. It's your right to do with what you want, with your choices, with your life, with your body, but not everything is good for your life. Everything is good for your body. Not every choice is a beneficial one. Not everything makes your life better. And he repeats that phrase, I have the right to do anything, almost like, hey, me too, by the way, I have the right to do anything, but I'm not going to be mastered by anything. And there's actually a play on on words in Greek, and we we miss it a little bit in English, but he uses the same word in both um, halves of the sentence there. And, And if I could translate it slightly differently, it would sound like this. I have the power to do anything, but I won't be overpowered by anything. It's actually the same word. I have the power to choose what I want, but I don't want to choose anything that's going to start to have a power over me. I don't want to choose things that are not going to be good for me. I don't want to choose things that are going to almost like enslave me, that are going to become a master over me. I don't want to choose to do things that are going to hurt me or harm me. Now, Paul could be talking about all kinds of different things here, but it becomes really clear in just a second that he's talking about our specific physical bodies. He goes on, verse 13. You say, so this is another time he's sort of quoting a slogan of theirs, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. Now, we don't know if this is a common saying, uh, kind of like, you know, what goes around comes around, or a cliche, or this was actually like a line from poetry or literature that everyone knew at the time, but it was apparently something that they believed. It's almost something like they would say, you know, it starts with you eat food to fill your stomach, but eventually you start eating so much that it's almost like your stomach exists for the food that you're eating. Or another way to put it would be this. First you eat to live, and then you live to eat. But don't worry about it, because God's going to destroy our bodies and our stomachs and our food and all of those things one day anyways. Because in Greek culture, that's what they believed. 
The physical body wasn't that important. It's dying, it's decaying, it's going to go away, and one day we're just going to be souls floating on clouds somewhere, but the body isn't that important. And here's what we know about Corinth. We know that in Corinth, it became this place of indulgence, because it was almost this idea like, if my body's just decaying and dying, why not just live it up now, right? Why not just eat all the meats and all the sweets and all the treats and all the gluten and all the carbs and all the things that I know might be hurting my body? Who cares? My body's dying and decaying anyways. Why not just indulge yourself while you can? And here's how Paul responds next. He says, the body... That's that word soma, and he begins to use this word over and over in the next few sentences. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. What? I thought we were talking about food. Like, that's like a hard right turn. We'll come back to that in a second. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord And here he's talking about Jesus from the dead, and he will raise us also. So this idea that your stomach just exists for food, that your body just exists to be indulged, to be satisfied because your body's not that important, it's going to die and decay anyways. Paul's basically saying, look, you're thinking about your body totally wrong. The body is meant for something different. And he says here, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Now, we think Paul has totally changed subjects, and we're not sure why now is he talking about sex. I thought you were just talking about food. And the word that he uses in Greek there is the word pornea. It's a very common Greek word. It's where we get our word, you can guess, pornography. But it doesn't just refer to pornography in the way we think about pornography at all. It's just a very general word that means sexual promiscuity, sleeping around, basically, indulging your sexual desire whenever you feel like it or whenever you feel like your body wants something. And now you can probably see the connection between these two things. It's as if Paul is saying, there are certain things related to your body, and in fact, there's two really big ones, food and sex, where we have desires, and those desires are good, and those desires are natural, and those desires are legitimate, but we can become overpowered by those desires. We can become slaves to those desires. We can get to the point where our bodies just become like appetites to be satisfied or indulged. And and Paul's friends in Corinth, it's like they're taking pride in this. They're going around saying, yeah, I can do whatever I want. It's my body. It's my choice. It's my life. It's going to die and decay anyways. Why not indulge myself now? And Paul is trying to say, no, your body is so much more important than that. It's so much more significant than that. You're cheapening your view of your body. Your body is not meant to be lived or treated 
in that way. It's not like your body's just going to die one day and who cares? In fact, God cares about your body so much, he's going to raise it up one day. We talked about that last week. He's going to raise it up and he's going to make it new. That's how important your body is. Now, Paul kind of dives into the weeds at this point, and he says, says a few more things, and we're going to read those in just a second, but I want to pause and just summarize what I think Paul is trying to teach his friends in Corinth, and perhaps what he's trying to teach us, and how we can begin to apply what he's saying as we think about our own bodies. So here's a few summary statements. Uh, number one, your body is not an appetite to be satisfied. That's not what your body primarily is. It's not just an appetite. And that doesn't mean you don't have appetites. It doesn't mean you don't have bodily desires. It's just that those aren't the things that define you. You're not just a bundle of desires and whenever you feel one, you need to satisfy it. You're not just a bundle of of needs that whenever you feel one, you feel like you need to address it or indulge it. You're so much more than that. Our bodies are so much more than that. We were made or meant, as Paul said, for so much more. And the two places where he sees that we have this totally wrong, where we're living out a way that we were not made to live or not meant to live our sex and food. And so let me give you two more statements. So statement number two is this, you are not meant to eat food that harms your body. So God gives us food to eat. Food is good, right? Food is meant to nourish our bodies. One of the first things that happens in the Garden of Eden, if you go back to Genesis, there's this description of Adam and Eve are made, and they're placed in this garden, and God says to them, and I'm just going to sort of paraphrase and summarize it here, God says to them, I give you all this food to eat, and it's good for you. It's all good. Eat this food. It's going to nourish you. It's for the benefit of your bodies. There's all kinds of amazing trees and plants and vegetables and fruit to eat in this garden. So eat all of this for the benefit of your body. Oh, by the way, there's one tree over there. That one's poisonous. Don't eat from that one. That one's going to harm your body. Actually, it'll kill you. That's how detrimental that one is to your body. But you can eat from all these others. They're good for you. They will nourish you. And the very first temptation the human's face is to eat the one thing that they're told will actually harm them and hurt them and not nourish them. And that's what we call the first sin. That's what we call sometimes the fall is them choosing to eat the one thing that ends up harming or hurting their bodies. Now, don't get hung up on, is this, is this a literal story? Is it metaphorical? Is it figurative? Is it, is it symbolic? And, and of course, there's so much more meaning to the story and what's happening in Genesis. But let's not forget that at the most simple and foundational level, we reenact this story every single time. We look at a plate of food and we have to decide, is this going to nourish me? Was this given to me to make me healthy and to nourish me? Or is this actually going to harm me or hurt me? Sometimes in America, we choose things that actually harm us 
and hurt us, that don't nourish us. So sometimes we just eat way too much, and that harms us, and that hurts us. And we know overeating is a huge problem in our country. And every single physician, every single health professional will tell you, we don't overeat because our bodies are telling us we need to keep eating or we need to eat more or that it's good for us. No, every single study basically says we overeat because we're stressed out. We overeat because we get distracted while we're eating, because we're doing other things and we just keep eating. We overeat because sometimes we just eat too quickly. We overeat because we're depressed, because we're having a down day and we just want something that we think might pick us up. Sometimes we just eat the kinds of foods that don't actually make us feel full, and so we eat too much of them. Sometimes we just eat uh, too much food because our culture keeps giving us massive portion sizes and telling us this is what we're supposed to eat. I mean, I could just keep going on and on and on, and you don't have to worry. I'm not going to recommend a specific diet plan to everyone today. This is not the unveiling of the new Corinthian diet, right? You can figure out And I can figure out what it means to eat food in such a way that actually nourishes our body and doesn't hurt us, doesn't harm us. The main point is simple. Our bodies are really important. It's really important to who we are. And it's important to God. And he cares about what we put in our bodies. And he gives us food to nourish our bodies, but we're not made to eat food that harms us. Now, one more statement. Number three, <clears throat> you are not meant to sleep around. Yes, you have sexual desires, and those are good. Those are given to us from God. God wired our bodies to have those kinds of desires. He wired us to engage with each other, and with some people, he wired us to to engage in this very intimate and personal way. And in fact, if you've ever stepped back and thought about what's the purpose of sex, there's really two answers to that question. The purpose of sex is union and reproduction. Union and reproduction. Union is simply uniting two people together. It's where two people are brought together in such a way that they're not really two people anymore. They are so united that they're thought of as one person. And how does this happen? Through the most intimate, vulnerable, physical, bodily act imaginable. You don't just think it. You don't just say it, hey, I want to be intimate with you, and now you're intimate with each other. You don't just feel it in your heart. It's not something that happens in your soul. It's not something you think about in your mind. It's actually something you do with someone else. You unite with someone else in body, and all of this is good. It's how Genesis describes the uniting of two people in a relationship of love and commitment and fidelity to one another. So the first purpose of sex is simply union. The second purpose is pretty obvious. It's reproduction. Every biologist will tell you that, right? It's why we call those parts of our bodies the reproductive parts of our body. Because in this act, it's how humans reproduce. It's how offspring are generated. It's how families are created. 
And all of this is good. The Bible calls it good to to reproduce, to, to raise families, to unite with other people. And this is why Paul is so adamant to say to his friends in Corinth, hey, don't sleep around. That's what the word pornea means. Don't sleep with people that you don't want to unite to. Don't sleep with people that that you wouldn't want to raise a family with, that you wouldn't want to reproduce with, that you wouldn't want to give a lifelong relationship of commitment and fidelity to. When you sleep around with someone like that, when you sleep around and don't have that kind of commitment and don't want to actually unite with them, you're doing the very opposite of the way your body was meant to live and act. And Paul spells this out in graphic detail in the next few verses. Look at this. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? So basically when you became a follower of Jesus, if you are one, it's like you united to Christ. Remember, you you died with him in his death and you were raised with him in life. And then he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And now it all comes together. It's pretty obvious. Paul is saying, like, this is what sex does. It it unites two people together. And so he quotes Genesis to help us understand that. And basically then he says, look, when you sleep around with someone who's not your spouse, and he gives this sort of far-reaching example, let's just take a prostitute, which wouldn't have been far-reaching Corinth. There was lots of prostitution happening in Corinth. So he says, look, let's just take this example. When you sleep with a prostitute, you're actually uniting with her in body in a way that you were never meant to with somebody that you don't even want to be united to. Don't you see what you're doing with your body when you do that? And so on the one hand, it's like Paul is saying, you've united your body and yourself to Jesus. You've committed to trusting in him and following him. And then you're totally ignoring him. When you just treat your body as an appetite to be indulged or to be satisfied. And you're totally ignorant of the consequences of what happens when you try to do that. And then Paul concludes the whole section by saying this, verse 18. So flee from sexual immorality. Just run away from it. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. See, those last few sentences are what we read at the very beginning of the series. And now it's super clear why Paul said that. Flee sexual etymology. Don't, don't sleep around. Not because there's some arbitrary rule that God made up. Not because God doesn't want you to have any fun. Not because sex is bad. 
There's a lot of churches or religious organizations that have made us think that, that God just set up some arbitrary rule or that sex is somehow inherently bad. No, it's actually something that's really good. Don't sleep around because your body is sacred. Because your body is holy. Because God loves you and who you are and he loves your body and he lives in your body and, and he died for your body and he, raised, he will raise your body up one day. And he knows that when you sleep around or you indulge that, even whether it's food or with sex, you're harming your body in ways that it breaks his heart because he knows it's going to bring bad consequences to you as well. Your body is good. And it's sacred. And it's like God loves it so much he doesn't want to see you harm your body. Now, today I want to close in light of all of that, which can feel kind of heavy, by just offering an invitation of grace and forgiveness and healing and wholeness. Because my hunch is every single one of us can think of ways that we've mistreated our bodies. Ways that we've hurt our bodies. Ways that we've treated our bodies as appetites to indulge. And maybe for you it's food. Uh, If so, you're not in the minority. Most of us have an unhealthy relationship with food. Perhaps this is the very first time you've actually thought about food as a spiritual issue. As something that God cares about. Or maybe you're sitting here, you're listening today, and this is one of those areas where you just have a lot of baggage, or you carry a lot of shame or failure in this area. And this is not about making you feel worse at all. In fact, it's actually making you, it's about making you feel better about your body, about helping you and I both see how much God cares about our bodies and how sacred and holy they actually are. And for whatever failures you've had in this area, you can find forgiveness and grace from Jesus today, and he can begin to help you pursue wholeness and healing. Uh, Maybe the issue of sex hits closer to home. Maybe you've never really thought about it this way. Maybe for you, you've thought, well, it's just my girlfriend or boyfriend, and we're, we're serious enough, and we're probably going to get married anyway, so it's not really a big deal. Or maybe it is pornography. Or maybe you're someone today who said, yeah, I know that aching feeling of trying to fulfill this desire and then feeling a whole lot more regret and a whole lot more pain and a whole lot more brokenness Because I'm uniting myself with people that I'm not really united to. And it's not working. And if Paul were here today, I think he would say, yeah. That's because this is a big deal. Because your body is sacred and it's so important. And there's all kinds of other mistakes and failures that we can have in life. But mistakes and failures in this area carry a lot more consequences and hurt and pain. And if that's where you feel like you are at today, I think the first thing to do is simply come back to God and say, I need a lot of grace and forgiveness, and I need a new start in this area. And so in a moment, we're going to take communion, because I can't think of a better way to do that.
On the night before Jesus died on the cross, you know the story probably. He shared a meal with his followers. He took the bread at that meal and he said, this is my body, my soma broken for you. And he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. And they didn't really understand what that meant at the time. The next day when he offered his life on the cross, we understand now that he was taking all of our mistakes, all of our failures, all of our shame, all of our regrets, all of our sin, whatever it was, onto himself. He was absorbing it so we didn't have to. So we could experience his grace and his forgiveness and then he rose from the grave so that we could experience actually new life in these areas of our lives. And so today, when we take communion, we do it to remember what Jesus did and it's a way of confessing where we've gone wrong and asking for his grace and forgiveness again. And if you think about it, it's a very bodily way of doing that. It's not just sit in your seat and sort of close your eyes and it's all going to just happen mysteriously. It's like, no, let's actually stand up and out loud say a prayer of confession. And then we sing a song and during that song, let's walk forward and grab this cup. And we just have these little cups up here and you'll peel it back and there's a wafer that you eat and then you can peel back the other part and you can do this at your seat and you can drink the juice. But it is a physical bodily way of asking Jesus to meet you again with his grace and forgiveness. So would you join me now? Let's stand together. And I just want to give you a moment if you do want to confess something in your heart. If there's something that you need to acknowledge or bring before God. And then in a moment, We'll put some words on the screen and we'll say a prayer of confession together and then we'll sing and take communion. join me in saying these words together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.